Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello, I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Tim McIntosh. And you are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader, on which we are discussing the Confederacy of Dunces, John Kennedy Tools, a novel written originally in the late 60s and published in 1980 posthumously. We will dig into that in full over the next uh, four or five weeks as we conclude the 2021 reading list here on Close Reads. We're coming to the end. Uh, hey, Tim, before we dig in, you know, yeah. one of the things we like to do at the end of the year is we like to talk about the books that we have read this year mm. that, you know, we had a great time with that surprised us, that meant a lot to us. And we're going to have, we're going to record that episode in December. And we're going to run that before the new year. But I am curious, could you, could you give us a little preview into what such a list might look like for you? Could you choose one book that surprised you this year? I did not ask them this ahead of time. I just thought, you know what, let's, Let's see if if Tim and Heidi have something on their mind that has been meaningful enough to them to uh, to want to mention it offhand. You know, you don't have to give us too much about it, but just a little little preview of what your your reading year has looked like. Okay, I gave you about forty five seconds there. Okay, um, for the close reads retreat, we read a memory of Old Jack mm-hmm. Wendellberry, which I yeah, I just found that book really, really moving. And I'm going to be a little nerdy. This doesn't really, eh, does a, does a great books audio course count as reading? Yes. Uh, it does. I mean, yes. no, but okay. also yes, sure. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, they did one on great sentences, how to build great sentences huh. and it was life changing. I mean, I'm, I'm like, I write for a living. So I'm a little bit skeptical about writing. I shouldn't be skeptical about writing books. I'll just leave it at that. It was revolutionary. And maybe if I get an occasion during our season closing episode, I'll talk a little bit more about that. That'd be great. Can you do it in that same voice? (laughs) Please. I'd love to do it in in that same voice. Heidi, what about you? Oh, mine is... I am not going to use that voice. That's a no. It'll get really boring and monotonous. You guys... My favorite is, or not my favorite, that's not what you asked. My most surprising read of 2021 was Hands Down, A Gathering of Old Men. I had no idea what to Mm. expect. I had no preconceived notions, and it was just such a delightful surprise. And, you know, when when you read a lot, like we do, it's rare that a book just like knocks you in the face surprise with surprise and delight. And that totally did. I loved it. So that's, that's mine for sure. How about you, David? I, I've read a lot this year. Um, and I've read a lot parts of so many books, but, um, I, I've, um, probably would have to say that the book that surprised me the most was one that I told you to read Heidi. It's basically just a, Popcorn psychological thriller 
who is Maude Dixon? I just love that book. Mm-hmm. It's it's a kind of popcorny psychological thriller that's well written, that's fun, that you know is it's not the most meaningful book, but it's one of the books that I had the best time reading this year. So I'll, I'll just say mm-hmm. that I've met, I've recommended that to a bunch of people in the store, and everybody comes back enjoying it. I think you liked it, right, Heidi? I did. I really liked it. I thought it was great. I mean, don't. When you pick it up, don't expect like a strong moral core to it. It's it's just fun. It's just for fun. Yeah, I mean, it's actually kind of bleak. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, in some ways. Yeah. Hey, Tim, have you read Verlin Klinkenborg's several short sentences about writing? I read the first chapter. Um, my friend Lisanne Cockrell recommended that book to me, and I loved it. I'm reading I it right now. It. Are you really? And it's amazing. It's Absolutely amazing. amazing. I, I have to say, I, I have this mixed reaction, and maybe we can talk about this on the show also, is that I both love it and I also feel like, for me, I have to go in the opposite direction, if that makes any sort of sense, about the, kind of like the stylistic recommendations that the author is recommending. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, okay. You know what? Let's save this. Let's talk about that on that yeah. episode. This is just meant to be a little preview, so we don't want to get too deep into that because we have... We have to do a deep dive of a confederacy of dunces. Mm-hmm. And Heidi, you had mentioned that you were kind of dreading, dreading totally this kind because of, of dreading the reputation that Ignatius <laughs> that Ignatius J. Riley has. He has a reputation, rightly so, for being gross. I mean, he is gross. Yes. So, so the first question to get our, to get our conversation going is just this: eighty-one pages in, three chapters in. How, I don't know, how did, it, how did it live up to your, to your, your anxieties and your fears? He's way, he's gross. I hate him so much right now, but the book is, I mean, the book's delight. This is a really good book. I was totally wrong. <laughs> I, everybody should read this book. This is a great book. Um, but yeah, he's, he's, he's gross. He's just as gross as I expected. And worse, <laughs> like I thought he was just going to be physically like, I, I just heard all these rumors about him, like, just, you know, all the things that he is. Um, and I didn't want to, like, read you're to? descriptions of it. Debelching. Yes. But, yeah, all of that. Um, but he's worse, like, in character than I expected, too. Like, I didn't know he was going to be this, like, disgusting body and soul. But I understand that's part of the book. And I understand this is a really good book. And I'm really glad I'm reading it. But I... This is testing. This is this is testing to me. It's not my he's not my favorite kind of person. He's worse than Falstaff, Tim. I like Falstaff more now than I did before I started reading about it. Okay, okay. That doesn't count. That doesn't count by like by saying, man, by contrast with this terrible character, I find Falstaff less repulsive. That isn't that doesn't count. I know what that's exactly what you're for saying. What? What's the standard you're counting me against? The standard is you need to fall in love with Falstaff. Oh, well, that, that's, I guess that's At another conversation. fall in like with him. We need to do a close rants. Close rants alert. Wait a second. Not, you know what? We can do a close rants or I don't know, Heidi, maybe we could do a, the plays, the thing episode or five. Yeah. I did insist, insist, <laughs> like insist on Q&A. being on. First of all, Henry the Fourth Part One is my favorite play by William Shakespeare. Um, and second of all, somebody needs to be on there telling the truth about Falstaff. 
Because I, I, <laughs> I know that Tim and Brandon are like... <laughs> Heidi is a false staff truther. That's so right. back to a Confederacy of Dunces. Yes. <laughs> so this is a novel that was written by John Kennedy Tool. I mentioned it was written in the mid to the late 60s and then eventually published posthumously in 1980. He unfortunately um, committed suicide in um, 1969. And the book became, you know, if you've done a little research, you know this, but the book was published through the efforts of his mother, who spent quite a long time trying to find a, a home for it. Uh, Walker Percy ended up getting a hold of it. She kind of forced it upon him. Uh, he read it and then he took it to, I believe, LSU Press. It ended up becoming uh, like it ended up becoming a, a critical darling. It won the Pulitzer Prize in 1981. It took a little while to get mainstream success, but by now it's probably considered more than a cult classic. It's considered one of the sort of preeminent works of the second half of the 20th century in, in the Southern lit canon. But it's a different book than we'd normally do here. It's got its bona fides, you know, it's got its reputation, but it's, it's not the normal kind of challenge we put before the close reads audience. I think it's fair to say it's, it's difficult not to read. It's actually, I think it's quite a breezy read, but it's, it's difficult in terms of the themes and the characters. And especially through this first quarter of the book, it's hard to know who do I pull for? Who are these people? Um, Why am I reading this? Why did they choose this? I'm sure all these questions are are hovering because it has a cult following it's got people who absolutely adore this book um in fact i believe there was a walker percy conference a couple of years ago where they did a, a couple of talks on this and as i recall like people like rod dreher are big fans of this our friend sean huge fan of this book sean johnson shout, say out, to shout out to sean johnson i just want to say if you want to learn more about john kennedy tool and the background behind this story, it does help, I think, to know a little bit about who he is. I did a podcast on what is now the bibliography feed. This is back when it was Libromania. Several years, three, four years ago with, with his biographer, Corey McLaughlin, I think is his name, McLaughlin. Um, he wrote a book called Butterfly and the Typewriter. And I did a conversation about the origins of this book. So if you want to learn more about that side of things, you can head over to bibliography and scroll down a little bit and you'll find that. We'll post it on the Facebook page too and probably put it in an email in the next week or so as well. So I just wanted to mention that if you're having trouble understanding like why we would choose this and you want to understand more about this guy, then you know there's, there is some, some background reading to be done. Great biography of, of him by McLaughlin, by the way. So that's all out of the way. Heidi's first impressions are out of the way. So that brings us to you, Tim. When did you first read this? This is not your first... Uh, first read of this? It's my second go round. I think I read it some point in the late nineties. That's my best guess. Okay. So it's been a while. It's been a while. And, um, how's it hold up? It holds up beautifully. I bet you I, love this book. I love this book. <laughs> um, yeah, I, it, it really, really makes me laugh. One of my central oh, an, questions for me, it's an LOL book. I, in my little oh, office, yeah. I'm, out, I'm laughing out loud so often, and it's just like two words. I put two words together, or a bit of dialogue, and it's 11 p.m. and I'm laughing with the birds. <laughs> One of my questions about this book, I have a couple questions about this book. Um, do we think it's kind of in the mode of Wooster and Jeeves? That's one question. I thought about this. Right? Yeah. What do you think, David? Um, I think we should talk about this. So what's okay. your second question? <laughs> um, are we to take Ignatius Riley as a real 
character. I know he's a comedic character, but how, like, are we supposed to read him as a satire? Are we supposed to read him as a standalone figure who's just a comedic buffoon and we don't take him seriously? Is something being communicated through him? And I don't want to, I mean, I, I don't want to lose track of the idea that this book, I think, first and foremost, is a book that's meant to bring mirth to its readers, number one. Um, but I can't help, after finishing the book, I can't help but think, is something deeper going on here? So that's one of my questions. Well, okay, let's do this. Let's talk about this in kind of like, let's go backwards from that. Let's look, talk about the deep question second. I want to talk about the idea of it as a comedy because I am firmly with you that this book needs, is, is meant to be a comedy. You said it's meant mm-hmm. to bring people mirth. So what I want to talk about first is the notion it can create a bit of dissonance for a lot of readers that a character as gross and wrong-headed and mean-spirited as Ignatius J. Riley is meant to be the core character of something that is meant to make you laugh. It's meant to be funny. So I, let's talk about let's talk about that bit. Is that is that is that dissonance for you, Tim? Is it dissonance that a character that is so wrong-headed? And gross. Um, and so gross. Funny. Yeah. Is so funny. Like, why, or, or another way of saying this, why does he use this gr- a character who is gross and mean and all those sorts of things as a sort of the core character in a book that is meant to make you laugh? Well, I, I want to say that I think part of the reason, that's not the reason that I find him funny. Like his um, lower GI track there are moments where he talks about his valve stopping and starting <laughs> during moments that he's that are causing tension to him. That's very funny. I don't find funny. it particularly <laughs> gross. I think the thing that's funny is the sort of um, the juxtaposition of his worldview and a the world that he exists in and b the kind of enjoyment that he actually ha- gets from the modern world, despite being this cantankerous medievalist. Yeah. I think those are the places that I laughed the loudest and the hardest. And I think that's the central, I think that's the kind of spine of his character. I, I think like the grossness is like, it, it's like great comedic, it's a great comedic sidebar, but I feel like the central um, vein of humor is the are those juxtapositions that I just described. The grossness feels to me like it's the most ancient medieval element in the whole book. Totally agree. Like, like there is a sort of active parasite in him that represents his sin, you know, or something like that, whatever word you want to use, the darkness that's in him. And he, so, so then I guess what I'm, I guess what I was going to ask is given that if we agree with, you can disagree with that if you want, does that mean that the book as a comedy is making light of dark things? Heidi, what do you no. think? Because it's, there are no. very complicated. Yeah. It's, it, it's way more than just a comedy. It is a comedy. And I, I think it's hilarious. Like, sentences like this like this this right here is worth the price of the book alone in my private apocalypse he will be impaled upon his own nightstick that's hilarious like there's <laughs> just so many little moments like that um even in like you, the dialogue tags 
like are so oh, great. Can, can we can we pause and just yes. share some lines that we think are funny? Because yes. I think if you're not like, I think it's easy to brush past how funny they are. At the end of the, the section we just read, there's the letter from the girl he likes. Oh, she, man. And she says to him, I'm afraid from what I know about clinical cases like yours that you may end up a psychosomatic invalid like Elizabeth Barrett Browning. It's <laughs> <laughs> so great. Like even this uh, is so funny. Like just like I said, even the dialogue tags are just like gold. It's like there's two on page 36 that were that made me laugh out loud. Um, hold on. I just found one. Okay. I'm sorry. Patrolman Mancuso said almost heartbroken over Mrs. Riley's financial quandary. Like that's so funny. It's like within the context of it, it just like flows through. And then it's so, so many of these are just purely, purely delightful. I love everything about the writing. He's a brilliant writer and none of this was edited. Right. Like they just handed not, over this manuscript lot, and yeah. it was posthumous. Well, I will say he he sent it to one of the big editors that worked with like Philip Roth and people like that. And they communicated for years back and forth. And he would give John Kennedy tool notes and, and tool would he would sometimes take them, sometimes not. And in the end, there's a section we're going to read that Kennedy, John Kennedy tool insists on keeping in. And it's the reason that the publisher wouldn't take it. I think he was like, a, he's the equivalent of a, like Penguin Random House now or something like that. So it wasn't not edited at all. It went through a lot of re- revising work, but it wasn't like refined after that manuscript was, was completed. So here's one. That is not a lute. No, that is a lute, not a banjo, Ignatius Leonard. Does she think that I'm one of those perverse Mark Twain characters? <laughs> the whole Mark Twain thing's so funny about how like their America's obsession with Mark Twain is one of the signs of its decaying culture. <laughs> so great. I've got one page 88, not far before the close of the section, the third section. As Ignatius pulled himself angrily up and out of the taxi, he saw his mother coming down the street. She was wearing her pink, her short pink topper and the small red hat that tilted over one eye so that she looked like a refugee starlet from the Gold Diggers film series. Ignatius noticed hopelessly that she had added a dash of color by pinning a wilted poinsettia to the lapel of her topper. Her brown wedgies squeaked with discount price defiance as she walked redly and pinkly along the broken brick sidewalk, even though... He had been seeing her outfit for years. The sight of his mother in full regalia always slightly appalled his valve. <laughs> it's just great. It's Speaking of his valve, so great. Here's perfect. one. The atmosphere of the place reminded Ignatius of his own room and his valve agreed by opening joyfully. <laughs> <laughs> That's when he goes to his new workplace, right? Yeah. And he's so impressed with the new workplace <laughs> because nobody's doing anything. <laughs> he was impressed and overwhelmed. <laughs> <clears throat> oh, that's so great. Okay, here's one. No, ma'am, Patrolman Mancuso answered, listening to some sort of approaching stampede. The children on that program should all be gassed, Ignatius said as he strode into the kitchen in his nightshirt. Then he noticed the guest and said coldly, Oh. <laughs> oh and this is him talking to his mom about Mancuso. Throughout the centuries, it has been the Mancusos of the world that have caused wars and spread diseases. Suddenly, the spirit of that evil man is haunting this house. He has become your Svengali. <laughs> <laughs> I love the barely hidden 
kind of um, anger that Ignatius feels for the detective because the detective seems to be a potential romantic suitor to Ignatius's mother. You know, and it, you can just like Ignatius just is smelling the loss of um, someone populating his fridge and like taking care of his living situation. So Mancuso is identified as a threat really quickly. Here's one. When Fortuna spins you downward, go out to a movie and get more out of life. <laughs> Ignatius was about to say this to himself. Then he remembered that he went to the movies almost every night, no matter which way Fortuna was spinning. <laughs> I laughed for so long about that because it's like straight out of Jeeves and Wooster, but also I love how, how true it is. Like, don't we, so don't we do that though? Where you're like, you know what? I I'm having a hard time. I'm just going to like turn to a TV. I'm going to like watch Netflix or something for two hours. And then you realize, Oh, I do that all the time. Anyway, it's like, mm. you know, mm. you, you turn to, you, know, <laughs> you, you think it's like, you think you're rewarding yourself. And then once you, and then you realize all of a sudden, nah, I just do that all the time. Yep. Someday. One of the films looked bad enough, he thought, to bring him back to the Britannia in a few days. <laughs> Ignatius, what's all, this trash on, on the, what's all this trash on the floor? That is my worldview that you see. It still <laughs> must be incorporated into a hole, so be careful where you step. And all the shutters closed. Ignatius, it's light outside. My being is not without its Proustian elements, Ignatius <laughs> said from the bed to which he had quickly returned. Oh, my stomach. <laughs> my being is not without its Proustian elements. <laughs> So, so great. One, so I think this is. I think the juxtaposition between Ignatius and Wooster, because I think he more resembles Wooster. Oh, of, oh. of Wooster and yeah. Jeeves. Yeah, yeah, right. Bernie Wooster. Yeah. I, I saw um, the British comic Stephen Pry, Fry talk about the difference between. British and American comics. And I think he was exactly right. His thesis is basically this. British comics are almost always like fools and failures. So if you think about someone like Rowan Atkinson, who played Mr. Bean. um, Legendary in my house. Is that right? Oh, my kids love Mr. Bean. Mr. Bean is so wonderful. And he's constantly failing. He's constantly failing, right? He's the, Jeeves is the one who kind of saves the day, but Wooster is the one who just can kind of barely get out of his own way, is always tripping over himself. Maybe he has these grandiose thoughts, but at bottom, he's just kind of a bumbler. And you love watching him. You love watching Mr. Bean kind of bumble his way through. And what Stephen Fry says is that the American comic is almost the opposite. They are the ones, I mean, there are some exceptions, that know everything. They are very self-confident and they're incisive and they're, like, think Chris Rock. Like, he's always got something to say and it's biting and it's insightful and he's pointing out things that we don't see, you know? And so I think- Like Richard Pryor or something. Yeah, like Richard Pryor, exactly. Um, Dave Chappelle. These are all, they see things and they call attention to things and they're smart, which is not, the British comics are smart, but part of their brilliance is being self-effacing and bumbling. You know, like Rowan Atkinson is brilliant and he puts that brilliance to use, kind of tripping over himself as he's attempting to 
park his car. Or losing his swimming suit in a swimming pool. Um, Ignatius Riley, in a strange way, is he's like the bumbling fool of the Brits, but he has the kind of aggressive insightfulness, however misguided it might be, of an American comic. He's kind of, I, I see him kind of as a mashup hmm. of those two veins of comedy. I like that. Do you, what do you think, Heidi? No, I, I think that's do you see good. I mean, I, no, but I do I mean, see, Wooster. Sorry. yeah, Wooster for sure. Um, I, I, I think that what, one thing I've been asking myself as I've been reading is, is this comedy going to become a satire or a farce or a mix of both a farce being kind of the romping bumbling failure fool kind of comedy when like these crazy things happen and there's fart jokes and people falling and splatting and that kind of thing um or is this going to be a satire yeah which is um kind of a little bit uh tends to be thought of as as a higher form of comedy in which the the comedy is pointing out some kind of hidden um, mistake or flaw within a culture or society and then making a commentary on it through the comedy. Um, And this is a smart enough book to say this is certainly going to be satirical, but there's lots of elements of farce already in it. Um, And so that is, I've I've just been kind of like watching out for that. And I think what you're talking about is similar. Like I wouldn't let Mr. Bean in my house with a 10 foot pole. So that's just not my kind of comedy, but I really do like, wait, you wouldn't let this, you wouldn't let the program. No, no, we've never watched an episode of Mr. Bean in my life. Never. I've watched like two minutes of it it because I've watched like two minutes of it and been like, I hate this. Change the channel. I've never watched the three stooges. I just, I don't like any of that. This is why I didn't want to read the book. This is what I'm saying. Like I, can we explore this? Let's explore this. Do you? I don't. I don't want to. Uh, Heidi likes competency. You don't want to. Oh, no. I Why do. not, Heidi? Why do you not want to explore this on the I air do. with I all of our to. friends? I changed my, yep. <laughs> all it took was an eyebrow raise from Tim. Oh uh, yeah, that's I right. Just I know I'm brave. I can I can handle it. Bring it on, Tim. Okay, so is. Is slapstick, I think of the Three Stooges as a classic slapstick. You know, it's like physical humor. It involves a lot of pain. It involves like some embarrassment and humiliation. Um, and is it, so is it slapstick that you don't really care for? Yeah, I don't like slapstick. That's true. And do you know, can you articulate why? Like, is it just a like false flat for you? Yeah, I just don't think it's funny. It feels cheap. I just don't, I don't know. I just don't like, I like satire. I don't like farce. Yeah. It, satire, it like holds the promise of there's something to be discovered. Like, like Gulliver's Travels, when you can kind of like unlock Gulliver's Travels and you're like, oh, Jonathan Swift has a point. The Lilliputians represent this and the giant represents this. Um is, so I can imagine that kind of being really satisfying and adding a lot of flavor to the just comedic narrative that is Gulliver's Travels. But the Three Stooges, there's just not much there, is I there? Like, I mean, there's not much right. else there. True. And I, I don't look down on – I wish I enjoyed it more because my I feel like everybody does. I just – I don't, like, look down on it. I don't, like, have my nose up and say, like, ew, I can't believe you would watch that. I I just don't find it funny. 
Um, mm-hmm. And I, I like witty, like incisive humor. Yeah, 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 yeah. I wonder if that, if the, I will admit, I don't know many women who are like the Three Stooges. That's my jam. Right. Oh, True. I could just, Fair. I could just curl up with Three Stooges, like gags, you know, all night. Oh, sign me up for Larry Curly and Mo. Yeah, no, that's that, that's not for <laughs> well, me. Incise, like the kind of incisive comedy you're talking about, though, is kind of like a new thing because staged comedy and even like the early movies didn't have the benefit of like talking. So right, like, it had to be physical, early, right? Yeah, it, mm. like like you know, they were the early silent movies weren't like making one-liners and quips and stuff like that, and even like so much stage stuff. I mean, Shakespeare is obviously very witty and stuff, but there's a lot of like depending on how you stage it, there's a lot of like um, Marx Brothers type stuff in a lot of the Shakespeare comedies. Um, yeah. So you know, the like the, the sort of incisive social commentary comedy is like kind of a new thing, relatively speaking, in terms of it being available to the mass public. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned Swift though, Tim, because that yeah. brings us, that's a nice uh, transition because the book's title comes from an epigram from a Swift essay. Did you know this? The essay is I called did not know this. Thoughts on Various Subjects, Moral and Diverting, which seems like it could be a title of an essay written by... Um, Ignatius J. Riley. And uh-huh. that epigram goes like this. When a true genius appears in the world, you may know him by this sign that the dunces are all in confederacy against him. So that's the epigram from Jonathan Swift. And of course, Swift right. himself was a satirist. So what, you know, what we have here is we have a book about a guy who thinks he's a genius and everybody's out to get him. Not unlike me. <laughs> So, but the question I have is if the, what we kind of have to say is, is it possible that he is right in any way? Well, is there any sense in which Ignatius J. Riley actually is a genius and people are out to get him and he's getting, and perhaps he's getting in his own way or is he the fool of all fools? I, I expect, I don't know. I haven't read, I haven't read it. Both of you have. So one of the first novel length kind of precursors to the novel is Don Quixote. Uh, And in Don Quixote, you have this fool who goes out believing he's a knight and he has all of these adventures and he's telling himself this story in his head that he is a chivalrous knight, but he's a fool the whole time. And then at the end of the story, it turns out that he in many ways was the chivalrous knight that he was claiming to be. And we have been reading him wrong the whole time. And that's what makes the story so complex and so enduring and so appealing to a mass audience uh, is that it ends up being this incisive commentary on the reader and the reader's interpretation of Don Quixote. Um, And I expect that this novel will turn out that way. That's, That's what I'm expecting it to be. That's my prediction in the first episode is that he's going to end up being like Don Quixote. Mm-hmm. And a, that we have been judging him all along. And because he's been telling himself a story and he's so unappealing and unattractive physically and emotionally, you know, relationally. But then at the end, we're going to have some kind of turn that says he was getting it right all along and we're the ones being examined under the microscope by this novel. Yeah. It's interesting because he's so full of, contradictions he's so full Mm -hmm. of many things as we know um 
but he's so full of contradictions. He is yelling at culture and yet is addicted to it. Um, that's just one example. And so that you, especially at this point in the book. So, so basically so far what we've, we've met him and his mother, they have the whole run in with the police officer outside of the shop or the bakery, I guess they go to the bar. His mom gets a little tipsy. They get in a car accident and then he has to go look for a job. So that's basically the sum, the one sentence summary of what's right. happened so far. Right. <clears throat> but he's, um, it's clear that he's smart to some degree. Oh, yeah, but he's the problem very is, smart. He's just slothful and gluttonous. Yeah. You know, Tim, were, we, were you going to say something? I'm having internet. I can't tell. If- well, I, I wonder, he clearly is academically capable. It seems like he's also living, he wants to live in a world that, that no longer exists. Um, like his namesake. Like his namesake. He wants um, there to be kind of like a bright moral line dividing the good from the bad. And in some ways it reminds me of the syllabus of errors. I can't remember which Pope it was, but in the 1800s, one of the Popes wrote a syllabus of errors. And basically if it was contemporary, it was condemned. It's kind of become famous as this condemnation of everything about modern life. And it so reminds me of Ignatius Riley. And at the same time, he clearly loves certain aspects of modern life. You know, I mean, like in kind of trashy things about modern life, like the dance show. He can't stand, he's like ridiculing the dancers and the entire spectacle. And at the same time, it's kind of titillating to him, you know, like despite himself, or he can't acknowledge it. So I think it's hard for me to say that he's really bright. How, how do I say this? There, I, I've met plenty of people, and I bet you guys have also, who if you just gave them a mic and asked them to talk about the thing that they loved more than anything else, and they got to monologue for an hour, they would sound brilliant. They could talk about model trains for an hour with dexterity and ability and and you might walk away from that being like, wow, what an eloquent presentation on model train building. Stunning. What insights. What intellectual horsepower. But they, there really isn't there. There's just a kind of like a know, memorization like the of, of coupling. Right, right. Like, and it's really tempting to like, like on that first no, impression to just say. What you just said is just us. <laughs> okay. No, I don't think so. <laughs> we are not I don't as think smart so. as we sound, is what I'm saying. That part I think is true. I will yeah. definitely say that. <laughs> well, when you're talking with I'm three people, as... you can make each other sound right. smart. That's it's true. Right. Exactly. But I think there's another kind of intelligence, which I think is a lot harder, which requires a lot more dexterity, which is you can actually interact with something outside of the owner's manual. You can deal with something outside of just static concepts. Hmm. And I think Ignatius J. Riley is brilliant with the static concepts of the medieval world. Fantastic. He can monologue all day about those things. And this book is basically 
a long inner monologue about the kind of like events, people, and detritus that come into his kind of medieval view of the world. But the inflexibility of Ignatius J. Riley is the thing that I think I'm not real excited to say like, yeah, he's brilliant. I mean, in some ways, yeah, of course he is. The way that he kind of diagnoses the world is hilarious and insightful. But I think the impliability (sighs) makes me reluctant to say like, yeah, this guy's really just brilliant. I'm not quite sure. I so I can't remember the end of the book to be honest Heidi. So maybe we I'm just set myself up to be rebuked by the end of the book like Ignatius J Riley is going to kind of like pull off the mask and we're going to see that yeah, this is the way the world ought to be. He's got insights and but I I'm, I'm not sold on um your expectation for the end of the book. But Great. again, I don't remember the end of the book. That's perfect. I think that you're I really like what you just said. By the way, it was very eloquent. That was a that was that was really that was really good. Um, I don't never know even how to work the word detritus into a regular conversation. That's just so great. <laughs> so proud of you. Um, so um, see, it's but, easy to make someone else seem smart. They say something, and then you go on and on about how smart. I they was are. objectively smart. Um, I. I will say that I think you're putting your finger on so much of the complexity of the book because I I think this book is really, really funny, but I also think it's really, really sad already. Yeah, yeah it is. Um, it's a dark comedy. And it is. And so much of the sadness is in the person that Ignatius Riley has become, what he's done to himself, right? Right. He's 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 the and which is why I think it's so great that Walker Percy because I when I was reading the first chapter I was like this sounds like Walker Percy to me and Walker mm. Percy by the way that introduction that he wrote was so good just like really beautiful good. writing it was like this is one of those if you want to become a writer you just copy that introduction like fifteen mm. times into your commonplace book and you're going to be a better writer right like um and. It has that same kind of um, hilarity mixed with like mourning and sadness that Walker Percy's work has. Like it very much has his own voice. John Kennedy Toole has his own voice, but he seems to be in the same kind of school of 20th century um, satirical kind of um, incisive commentary that Walker Percy has. Um, I, I also think that Ignatius Riley is so much, and the last time I said this on the air was talking about the moviegoer, is that Ignatius Riley, Riley is like a man without a chest, just like Lewis said, right? A man with a really well-developed mm. mind and a clearly well-developed appetite and nothing in between to mediate the two, mm. right? He just lacks a heart of courage, which is what it means to be a man with a chest. I'm referring, of course, to C.S. Lewis and the abolition of man, making the claim that the problem of modernity is that our culture is producing men without chests, meaning people with vast appetites and with a lot of knowledge and no morality, no robust moral grounding in order to mediate between the two. And I think we see that in Ignatius Riley in an even more dramatic way than we saw in the moviegoer. It's just right in your face. I think in some ways it's more tragic here because Mm -hmm. he has at least ideology, right? Like he, he has what he, what he would call a moral 
worldview a cause and he is yeah. trying to yeah he's trying to cling to old things you know i mentioned his namesake ignatius you know saint ignatius of loyola founded the jesuits and it was like a, an anti-reformation right like a post was it anti-reformation yeah, reactionary mm-hmm. reactionary movement. yeah mm-hmm. like a, re, a movement to restore something that had been that they believed had been lost so but here that, we this had, is before the Jesuits became the Jesuits of right. today, which is like this rich intellectual tradition within the Catholic Church. This is kind of at the very beginning. Sorry but any, but anybody who's from New Orleans, for example, probably would have recognized, like there's a lot of Ignatiuses because the Jesuits, there's Jesuit schools, all that kind of stuff in, in right. Catholic diocese, diocese is diocese <laughs> down there. But the, the thing is, so he, he has like a sense of what, about moral order ought to look like, or at least where it should come from. Like he believes that there was a moral order in like the 1400s, right? That we have lost the capacity for moral order. But where he doesn't have a chest is in the ability to... um, Get a job? To make that as anything... You're right. Well, yeah, essentially, yeah. To make it anything more than an ideology that he gets on Twitter and rants about, Right. And I know that there's no Twitter in this book, but this is a book about 22 year old to 32 year old people who are on Twitter in 2021. Like that's what he is. Right. It's like, I I cannot like, to me, it's, he's a, he's a troll. He's a troll. He's who, who has ideology, who's intelligent, who can research stuff, who has the ability to maybe put some sentences together, but also lives in his mom's basement and watches pop culture. Right. Mm -hmm. And like, there are degrees to which that is healthy and degrees to which that is not healthy. And he is so stuck in his ideology that he has complete inability to have empathy, for example, or to interact with someone in a way that isn't um, about making that ideology. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say Boethius. Like he can't really interact with anyone if it's not about, yeah, well, I like think Boethius and his cosmology. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. I mean, nature. like, okay, I think the first page of this book is incredible. Um, and so his, um, I'm just going to read the first two paragraphs if that's okay, because I think it right away Kennedy Tool gives us everything we need. A green hunting cap squeezed the top of the fleshy balloon of a head. The green ear flaps full of large ears and uncut hair and the fine bristles that grew in the ears themselves stuck out on either side like turn signals indicating two directions at once. That metaphor to start this book. What else do we need? Full pursed lips protruded beneath the bushy black mustache and at their corners sank into little folds filled with disapproval and potato chip crumbs. I mean... That's hilarious. In the shadow under the green visor of the cap, Ignatius J. Riley's supercilious blue and yellow eyes looked down upon the other people waiting under the clock at D.H. Holmes' department store, studying the crowd of people for signs of bad taste in dress. <laughs> Several of the outfits, Ignatius noticed, were new enough and expensive enough to be properly considered offenses against taste and decency. Mm. Possession of anything new or expensive only reflected a person's lack of theology and geometry. It could even cast doubts upon one's soul. Ignatius himself was dressed comfortably and sensibly. The hunting cap prevented head colds. The the voluminous tweed trousers were durable and permitted unusually free locomotion. Their pleats and nooks contained pockets of warm, stale air that soothed Ignatius. The plaid flannel shirt made a jacket unnecessary, while the muffler guarded exposed Riley's skin between ear flap and collar. The outfit was acceptable by any theological and geometrical standards, however abstruse, and suggested a rich inner life. (laughs) <laughs> so like there's the comedy 
but there's also the dissonances in, disson, dissonances in him, like with the two the turn signals going in opposite directions. There's his own way of looking at the world in, in the sense that he believes there is a right and a wrong, like there is an order, but he doesn't have the capacity to, to interact with another person within that same order. And I, I think it's an interesting book about empathy in that way. Like what is the relationship between empathy and personal relationship and like how you see the world? So I just love the way this, these two paragraphs are are so good. Like you just get we get to, we know so much about this character so quickly, mm-hmm. and it's all showing. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. Anyway, sorry, went on a rant there. No, that was great. Close rant. Yeah, I think the I think the opening page of this book are they do exactly what you want an opening page to do. They just put the ball right on the tee, and it also introduces us to the notions of the medi- the medieval stuff. The geometry yeah. and the theology, like the relationship between the two. And Heidi, like, I, I wanted to ask you this, like you're our resident medieval, m- medieval knowledge. Yeah. yeah. Medieval. I'm trying to think of how, how do you say a medieval lover of me- medieval things? Um, Just an amateur. <laughs> yeah. An amateur medievalist. Um, so for you, like geometry, theology, all of his references to the, to the, to Boethius and the wheel of fortune and all that kind of stuff. How does that play out for you in this as an enthusiast of those things? And Tim, I'm not saying you're not an enthusiast, but. Right. Um, Yeah, I find it, I find it delightful and also convicting because one, one of the things I love about the medieval tradition is that I, I believe it to contain some antidotes to the problems of modernity um, I also love it for its own sake because I'm like a nerd like that, but I also believe it has some like a kernel of virtue that's missing in a, a bereft modern landscape. And um, and and yet it has done nothing to bring harmony to this man's soul in the book. Right. And that is compelling to me. Uh, and um, and I, I think that that's one of one one of the underlying commentaries within this book because our author himself was a tormented medievalist right um and so i don't know how much of this book is autobiographical i know he he had a pretty strong mom who advocated for him after his death that's what we learn in the uh in the uh introduction um so i have that question mark in my mind but I think it is compelling and convicting to me how much this man knows and yet how little he lives out what the medieval tradition actually has to offer to a soul. And it reminds me that the only way to heal a soul is through repentance and through virtue, um, not through knowledge, right? And I think that that's one of the comments that that this book is inviting us to enter into. It's interesting how much he tells his mother to go to confession given that like he gaslights her and is like, just go to, yeah. con- like you just need to go he's to confession. It's all your giant fault. Mm-hmm. Hypocrite. Right. Mm-hmm. And, but he re- and of- he's talking about repentance though. Exactly. And he won't repent himself. Like he's such right. a hypocrite. That's why he's so unattractive and unappealing. Um, and I've never met in a book. I say met because I believe book characters are like real people. Um, <laughs> I've never met in a book, a protagonist like him before. Like he, he's more like a secondary character. Um, not, 
he's not, you know, leading man material necessarily. And so, you know, even Falstaff is a secondary character, although he does kind of steal the show, Tim, I'll give you that. Um, but he is, he's not the main character of his play and, and, and this, but this is a bold and this, it's a risk making Ignatius Riley the protagonist of this book. It's bold and I like it. I think it's smart. I think it works so far. I haven't read ahead, but it also is you, you brought up David that this is a book that has the question mark of empathy related to him. Like he is so, he has no empathy even to his own mother who does everything for him. Um, but I also think along with asking the question about Ignatius's empathy, the book is also asking us as readers to mm -hmm. enter into this story with some empathy um, so mm -hmm. that you don't give up totally in the first chapter that. and say, gross, ew, I don't want to read this, right? Like that's, um, which that was my attitude coming in. I didn't want to read it because I knew he was such an unattractive main character, but I'm glad I am. And it gives me a chance as to practice what I preach about entering into a story with empathy um, because he is a compelling psychological study as well. Like his, the lack the, his, his father being gone, his relationship with his mom, um, his belief in his own superiority, uh, which is, and yet also his physical grossness, which is going to make him feel less superior. And he's constantly trying to climb on top of that feeling. And so he just turns into a jerk, right? Yeah. So like, yeah. psychologically, he totally works, which is why I think this book has like a, an undercurrent of sadness along with its, you know, comic overtones. And the book kind of like comments on the psychological stuff, like with the letters yes. where they're like, the book almost like anticipates that people are going to try to read it, like be Freud and or young or someone and, and like make him a case study. Go ahead, Tim. Mm -hmm. I was going to say, kind of piggybacking on what Heidi's saying in so many of the, like the great books that we've read, we can identify ourselves with the main character because the narrator or the character kind of lets us inside. There are um, the barriers to entry kind of like slowly get reduced during the course of the novel. I think this book is going to be different in that we can't directly access Ignatius Riley's interior life. He talks plenty about his interior life when he, you know, is writing about medieval cosmology, but it's all, um, it's kind of aluminum. There's not like a fleshy heart in there that we get to see. Mm -hmm. So the way that we get to know him is almost by getting to know his maladies, his psychological maladies. I mean, there's a part, you mentioned, David, the letters at the end of book three, section three, the letter, the letter that he receives from his former girlfriend, Myrna, Myrna, um, in which she kind of does this Freudian diagnosis of all of his problems. And I read it and I was like, yeah, I think all that's true. I think it's all true what she's saying. And it's kind of, it's kind of harsh to read because it's done out of this place of real disgust with him. You know, she's like, seems to be like she's a jilted lover. She wishes to, that she could have had more with Ignatius for reasons that are unknown to us. And she writes this kind of nasty letter. But in the letter, even though it's nasty, there's a lot of truth in the diagnosis that she kind of puts forward about why he is the way that he is. So I think as a reading experience, it's 
it's interesting that we can't access his inner life because he might not have one. And yet we do have access to his inner life because we get this, we're kind of put in the role of being like Myrna, like an amateur psychologist. I think one of the things that is most sad is that every time someone tells him the truth, he gets angry with them. Mm -hmm. And so that, you know, like you, and that, because that's so sad, like as that starts, as it happens more and more and more, you realize the kind of denial that he is in, he has this inability to see himself for who he is. And yet he can't figure out how to attain any kind of happiness or contentment or stability. And, and those two things are tied together. So it makes it, it makes it that much more sad every time he just lashes out at someone who, who tells him the truth. Yeah. Um, and I think it, then that's where the empathy that Heidi's talking about comes in. Like we as readers are forced to make a choice about how we're going to respond to him Mm -hmm. and how we respond is going to determine a lot about how we feel about the book. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's too easy to just write him off and judge him. Yeah, and, right. Yeah. Um, and I think to be honest, if if I'm being honest, that's why I felt a bit resistant to reading it is because I didn't want to kind of like work up the energy to be for somebody like him. Um mm. but that's like that's the challenge of the book, I think, on behalf of the reader. It's not to just is is to try to see him as human, not just gross. And um and to have and to have empathy and enter into his story and hope for his repentance and redemption and all those things, even in a comedy. And it does actually help that this book is delightfully hilarious. But I think that that's part of why I was like, I don't know, I don't want to, I don't want to like be yeah. friend to this kind of a person in a book. But I'm going yeah. to right now. We're doing it, and now mm-hmm. I'm in it, and I care, and I am coming to care. Um, but it's it takes work sometimes to care about the kind of people that you wouldn't be friends with in real life or wouldn't want to yeah. be, and you meet them yeah. in a book, and you have to like kind of work up the energy to engage. Which I know that we've done that throughout the um, uh, throughout. We've asked our readers to do that, but this is my first. I'll, I'll just say on the air, this is my first character that I'm like I don't like this guy. And I don't want to be for him, but I have to be because I'm in the book now. Mm. And that's how you read a book. So, so, so yeah. Tim, do you, do you like Ignatius? Cause she said she doesn't like him. It's the first time she's felt that way about a close reads book. I, I do like him. Let me, let me make a comparison. I, I like him. I'm going to admit a dark part about myself. I think that he is set against a backdrop of New Orleans. And I think there is, and I think it's a perfect backdrop to him because what New Orleans looks like is sort of aesthetic and ethical chaos. It just looks like crazy town USA, right? And all of the characters that we meet in one way or another are kind of... um, They've got, they're like working through some stuff, right? And so there's this sort of um, aura of degeneracy hanging all around the book. And I think part of what I like about Ignatius is his, I kind of revel in the fact that he is so condemnatory. And I'm admitting this is like a shortcoming, but I think part of the reason the book works is that. 
He has we opinions. We laugh at him, <laughs> and, and his opinions are about kind of like the degeneracy that's all around him, and the and there's something about a like crisp and clear moral order that he stands for that feels kind of good and it feels kind of good when he just rails against the slovenliness of modern culture and I kind of get a little bit haughty about it and I'm like yeah you tell him Ignatius you know even and then I kind of back up and I'm like oh but he's Clown fugue. Well, I think you're getting at. <laughs> yeah, no, well said. I think. Um, oh, Tim, the, your, I, the turn of phrase with Tim McIntosh. <laughs> I think. Welcome I think that what you're talking about, though, is how you, we how we can find empathy or sympathize with him, because I think to some degree or another, we can all sympathize with having a belief that there is a right order or a right way of doing things or a right kind of behavior, but not being able to live up to our own ideals. Like I can look at him and I can see him railing against the world, some negative view of the world. And I can say, I agree with that. And then you can look at him and say, yeah, but he never lives up to it. And then a minute later I can realize, well, I don't always live up to it either. I think that's something that is universal. Now he's used like it's an extreme version of it. I, yeah, I get what you're, I get what you're saying. And there may be right. I, so much of his ethical code is not about his own failings to achieve that code. It's all out. It's all pointed outward at the world and it's all demonstrating how like kind of morally bankrupt the world is. But the thing that he's not advocating for are things like, love, humility, like mm. the like the personal virtues that would soften him, he's more pointing toward these kind of like um infractions of moral rules that he finds everywhere. Mm. So I, I don't right. feel the kind of like condemnation of his moral code not being lived up to. His moral code is such an abstraction that it's almost like not even a thing that we would strive to live for. Well, and what I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what, what I see in Ignatius is that it's less a moral code and more a longing within himself to be superior to everyone around him because yeah. he is, uh, that, that, because he is so gross and he knows that, right? And he wants to be better than other people. Like people tell themselves a story when they're a, when they have when they're a failure, they mm-hmm. tell themselves a story of like why they're actually better than everybody else. Mm-hmm. And I, that mm-hmm. is what I see. And I don't actually see him as enamored with a medieval world. I see him as having found a code by which he can condemn and judge everybody around him and and himself and let himself off the hook. So this character is supposedly based on on a character that he knew while teaching. Oh, um, really? And it was this guy Go who on. had this this high view of the medievals and of art and all this kind of stuff, but then was a complete slob. So then he took mm. that, like he dressed absolutely slovenly. And Ketul was obsessed with this idea that this guy could have this high view of the arts and culture and believe in this medieval, like basically medieval cosmology, that's what he taught. And then have no ability to take care of himself. And so he took that and he 
you know, made it into a caricature. Like, you know, he, mm. he, he expanded on it and blew it up a little bit. No pun intended. Um, nice. but do you, so I actually want to talk about that a little bit though, before we go, there's like, there's a like Chaucer like vibe to him. Heidi, oh, like, interesting. have you ever like, like a wife of baths, like he could be a character or the, or one yes. of the storytellers in, in Chaucer. So yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Well, what you just said was kind of goes along with something I was thinking about this book, which by the way, for, for those of you who want to know how resistant I was to this book, I put it off until reading until like 1030 last night. So I'm like, oh, you're like um, 80 pages. Yes. In. Yeah. We've been reading um, nonstop since. Yes. Um, that as I was reading that, I thought this, he's actually a really, um, brilliant character in a literary sense because he is he feels to me like a medieval caricature um somebody and i thought of chaucer like this guy could be in chaucer um and and chaucer was the same he was chaucer was actually hilarious it's really funny when people think that you know the classics are going to be boring um because chaucer's really funny um and he has uh you know the um, Canterbury Tales are all about people going on a pilgrimage together. And it's a really smart idea in a literary sense because the pilgrimage was the only time that the, uh, that the uh, classes of medieval life would actually come together in any kind of communal sense because the order was so structured that, you know, a knight would never be around a peasant and a king would never be around, you know, um, the wife of Bath or whatever. And so putting them on a pilgrimage together and then they tell each other their stories and that's what makes up Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. And he feels to me much like a medieval caricature um, that would have been um, put into a story like Canterbury Tales in order to illustrate the impact of the vices on the human soul and body. Um, because he has, Ignatius Riley's vices are so front and center. Um, and to the medievals, the vices were a very orderly kind of, um, like they would, they believed that the, that the vices, the seven vices, we call them the seven deadly sins, impacted the soul in a certain way. And there's a way to combat them. So he is obviously a cautionary tale of gluttony and sloth and pride and envy and anger, right? You can see all of these, of the seven deadly sins um, with it. Even lust we see in the way that he um, responds in the movie theater to the, um, to the woman on the stage or excuse me in the in the film and how he looks at her leg and then he starts throwing popcorn at people and yelling and screaming at the movie which is funny but also sad because this is his own kind of um lashing out at his own vices um by an attempt to be superior superior over them but actually they are ruling him so he's enslaved um yesterday in one of my classes we we were reading Psalm 15. We always begin our classes with a Psalm and um, there's a line and oh, excuse me, Psalm 17. There's a line in Psalm 17 that says the wicked are encased in their own fat, which is another mm. thing I thought of when I was reading this book, this idea of, of, um, and so I looked it up and sure enough in ancient, um, in ancient times, it was thought that if you, that, that fat would kind of um, desensitize someone to the world, 
right? It was mm. like this, this way of creating a barrier between the soul, like the thicker the body, the thicker the barrier between the soul and the world. And, 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 and we certainly see that in, in Ignatius Riley. Like it's very clear that this author knows exactly what he's talking about and is bringing in medieval literary devices in order to describe this character obsessed with medievals who's actually failing his own ideals. Well, we could talk about that extensively. We will, I think, over the next few weeks. We should probably wrap this up, though. Tim, do you have any final thoughts, anything you're looking for, all that sort of thing? I'm very excited to, to read more about the kind of juxtaposition of beliefs between Ignatius and his former girlfriend, who apparently is like this kind of amateur Marxist. I just, like, what a great foil for him. Uh, and I'm, yeah, I'm excited to see that play out in the next sections. One of your favorite things, amateur Marxists. <laughs> amateur Marxists are my favorites. That is so true. Love them. Heidi, what about you? Okay, so Email I'm going to read a paragraph from page 37 that I, this is my like laughing my head off paragraph. And this is, this is my case for the fact that Ignatius Riley will be vindicated in some way in this story. Um, here's the, here's the paragraph. This is when he's been watching TV while his mom's been hanging out with Mancuso. And then he comes in and yells at her and makes Mancuso leave. Um, and he says, the ironic thing about that program, Ignatius was saying over the stove, keeping one eye peeled so that he could seize the pot as soon as the milk began to boil, is that it is supposed to be an exemplum to the youth of our nation. I would like very much to know what the founding fathers would say if they could see these children being debauched <laughs> to further the cause of Clearasil. However, I always suspected that democracy would come to this. He painstakingly poured the milk into his Shirley Temple mug. A firm rule must be imposed upon our nation before it destroys itself. The United States needs some theology and geometry, some taste and decency. I suspect that we are teetering on the edge of the abyss. See, I told you. It's people on Twitter. Brilliant. He is. It's so good. Everything he said in that paragraph is exactly right. It's all exactly right. It's all true. It's just he is such Point, a... He's drinking out of a silly word. temple. Right, exactly. Like, I'm going to use this word intentionally. He's such a disgusting mouthpiece for that kind of raillery uh, and, and essentially prophecy. This was written long, long time ago. And now we're actually seeing these kind of things come to fruition. So anyway, I think at some point he is going to be vindicated and hopefully, I hope, redeemed. That's what I'm hoping for. So Tim, one of the things I, I love that you mentioned the, the Jeeves and Wooster thing, because as we've been talking and then as you said that, Heidi, or you were reading that passage, it made me wonder, is maybe what, he maybe he is Wooster. Like what? Maybe he is what would have happened to Wooster had there not been Jeeves had there and, been this no social, Jeeves? and the, yeah. there had been this social order. Like those are the two things that were enabling Jeeves to not fall into the despondency of right. Right. this character. He's got Jeeves that. telling him what to do and giving him advice, and there's a social order that. The part one of the points of those books is that that's falling away, that social order, but the the remnants of it are still there, such that it's like he's able to cling to them. So he's able to cling to his, you know, butler. I always want to call him a butcher, but he's clinging to his to his butler, and he's being propped up by the social social order that's still there. This character, 
Ignatius doesn't have either of those things. And, you know, the absence, this book is so much about absence. It's about absences of orders and relationships and all those sorts of things. And uh, so, so that I'm, you mentioning that got me that got that into my head. So I'm going to look for yeah. that as we keep going. Yeah. Heidi, did you want to say something? Nope. I've said all the things. Tim. All right. Well, if you are having a hard time with this book, we understand. Hang in there. But I, but I do hope that, yeah, I hope you read along with us and hope you can find some, some humor out of it as well. Um, Tim, what's up on the plays of thing? We are about to um, release our Q&A episode. We're recording it on Friday, so two days from today. And next, and on the same day, Heidi and I and Brandon LeBlanc are going to be beginning our discussions of Henry IV, Part 1. Oh, nice. Okay. And we're recording it on Wednesday the 17th. So by the time this goes up on the 19th, those should, you'll be recording on those Both, days. Yeah, so, right. Uh, we've got some bunch of new Patreon stuff. You may have seen our, our post on that. Um, I posted that on the Facebook page and sent it out via email. Um, we're doing Anna Karenina. So well in, well into that. Uh, also, we've got Withy Windle, of course, and we've got bibliography, lots of great guests and conversations and content out there. So be sure to subscribe to all those wherever you get podcasts. I guess that's it. I guess that's all. Heidi, why don't you get the last word this time? What? On yeah. behalf of David Kern, Tim McIntosh, I'm Heidi White. Thanks for tuning in and happy reading. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.